let's dive in. We are in week five of a series called Verified. First John chapter 2. Go ahead and go there. First John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 today. Another two-verse day. Uh, we're in week five. And um, it's been said that good preaching does two things. It comforts the disturbed and it disturbs the comfortable. And that's exactly what this letter is doing, John's doing. I'm even attempting to do with my preaching. Because what he's doing is he's comforting those who are disturbed by doubt over their salvation while he's disturbing those who are falsely comfortable in theirs. This is all about the assurance of salvation. It is eternally vital that you know the answer to this question. Are you saved or are you not? Are you right with God or are you not, or not right with God? It's so important for so many reasons. I've been giving you reasons. Let me give you three today. It's so important for you to know because I still believe there is enough of cultural Christianity that still exists in our culture uh, that leads me to believe that there are a lot of people falsely confident in their salvation, including people, yes, here at our church. People that have put their confidence in a prayer that someone told them to repeat as a guarantee for heaven. Or someone who has, uh, has done a inviting Jesus into their heart, so to speak. Which is not in the scripture. There's nothing about that. Maybe some are putting their hope and their confidence in a baptism or a class of confirmation. You know where I'm going with this. None of those things in the scripture show us that we're saved by doing those things. The only way to be saved is by having a genuine personal relationship with God, and that begins with repentance and faith through Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross. That's where salvation is found. So I hope, and I think John does too, that through this series and this letter that some would say, hey, whoa, I've come to the realization my faith is counterfeit. It's me, and now I want true life in Christ. I want the thing. I don't want religion. I don't want any of that stuff. I just want Christ and Christ alone. And there, in that space, you will become verified. The second reason why assurance of salvation is so important for the believer who struggles with doubt. And you shouldn't doubt. You know, Jesus on the cross He didn't die so we could have this I hope so kind of life. And I hope, I hope when I stand before God, he's going to let me in. I hope I've done enough. That shows the misunderstanding of the gospel. He purchased all things on the cross. All right? So if you don't understand that Jesus paid it all, you will not risk it all. You'll be in spiritual paralysis. Lukewarm, casual attendance at church mediocrity in your giving and your tithing. You will only serve when it's convenient. Those are things that will happen if you struggle with your assurance. This assurance is the fuel that fuels every other aspect of our life. So I hope you find that through this series too. The third reason why assurance of salvation is very important is because it corrects bad soteriology. That is a word for the study of salvation. Now, In the 16th century, uh, the the established church right before the Protestant Reformation, uh, there was uh, an idea, a concept that said, hey, Luther, if you begin to preach the assurance of salvation and you tell people that they're saved now on earth, buddy, they're just going to go off the rails and be disobedient. 
They're, just gonna, they're not going to obey if you take the fear of hell away from them, right? And Martin Luther called that the damnable doctrine of doubt. He said, yes, you can scare people into obedience, you can threaten them with uh, consequences if they don't obey God. And it will only produce a veneer obedience. That if you truly want the love of God and the obedience to God, you have to take away the fear. All right? And, and, and the, the fear is only taken away when you understand that the love of God on the cross accomplished everything. And you are now freed up. To love God and obey God. So this corrects a lot of those things in us. So John's letter here, John's letter is a letter to us. And he wants to help us get assurance of salvation. And his method is to take us through test. Uh, He has taken us through a doctrinal test about who Jesus is, if we know him or don't know him. He's taken us through a sin test. What's our relationship with sin? He's taken us through a moral test. Do we obey the commands of God? He's taken us through a relational test. How do we love one another as believers? Today, he takes us through another test, which is the love test. The love test. And he says that if you love the world, you don't love God. It's very simple. If you don't love, if you do love the world, then you don't love God. Now, some of us are saying right now, don't love the world. Heck, that's easy. I mean, we don't love the world right now. Look at the world. So what does he actually mean by this? So let's, let's dig in and see what he actually means by this term. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll go to the word. Father, today, um, I pray before I begin, that you give, me, um, you give me clarity of speech, that you remove my mouth from error. I pray for the ears that are here today, for the hearts that are here, that you must cultivate hearts and you must give ears to hear, or this word is not effective at all. I pray that you quicken the dead, those who are trusting in other things for their salvation besides Christ. I pray that you Make them alive together today. Pray that the believer is quickened to repentance. And God, I pray today that you increase our love for you and we break our love affair with the world because you are a better lover than this world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, 1 John. 2, 15 through 17. Here we go. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, so let me, let me break down this passage for you. <clears throat> if you're a note taker, I love to break them down because what it does is it teaches us how to read our Bibles on our own. The passage breaks down like this. There's one single exhortation, one command in this whole thing. Do not love the world. Then John describes what 
loving the world looks like at. He gives three examples of what loving the world looks like. And then he gives us three reasons or incentives on why we shouldn't love the world. All right? So the first one is the command, do not love the world. Now, we know that God is love. We know that love is kind of John's thing, right? He's been trumpeting, love one another, love one another 51 times. John says to love in the epistle of 1 John. 51 times he says to love, but there's only one time where he uses don't love in a negative way. And it's found here today. Do not love the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this the great negative exhortation. Do not love the world. Now, the first thing I would tell you is this is a phrase and passage of Scripture that a lot of hyper-legalist fundamental churches have hijacked and used it to denounce everything from dancing to Jack Daniels, uh, card games, video games, rated R movies, rock and roll, uh, uh, swimsuits that have holes in the knee. All right? Like if you went to this church and you were a female and you went to camp, they'd send you home because of a hole in the knee of the swimsuit. All right? You know what I'm talking about? They would denounce everything, including, listen to this, long hair. They would denounce uh, and call a man having long hair as a sin. There's actually a song about this. Some of you, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, uh, but you can YouTube it. There's actually a song that says, if your hair's too long, you have sin in your heart. It, I said it like that because that's kind of like that. But then it says, cut it off today and get a brand new start. I mean, it's, you can't make that stuff up. YouTube it later today. And I thought when I, when I was going to do that, I thought I was going to sing that for you guys this morning. But every time I sing, Brad and Corey get threatened. So I didn't want to get them disturbed there. You, you can't make this stuff up, but this is not what it means. Uh, in order for us to understand what it means, we have to know context. And that, that shows you the danger of taking a word out of context. This word world here, uh, we have to know what it means and what John means by here. The word world in the Greek is cosmos, and it has Three meanings that vary depending on the context, where it's written, the surrounding passages, all those things. So let's talk about those three. The first meaning of the word cosmos of the world is creation. All right, God uh, created the heavens and the earth. So you're talking about mountains and you're talking about lakes and rivers and rainbows and oceans and the stars and all those things. We are supposed to love creation. We are supposed to steward Creation. So certainly John's not saying here, hey, you need to hate the world. You need to hate creation. He's not saying that. The other word for world means all people of all nations, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's talking about God so loved all people of all nations, every tribe, every language. So once again, clearly John is not saying don't love people, Right? So it's not talking about, he doesn't want us to hate creation, and he doesn't want us to hate people. So what is he talking about when he uses the word world? It's the third meaning of cosmos, and it means this. It is the invisible, anti-God system of the world that we live in today that opposes God and opposes people. 
Sin and Satan ruled. All right, that's what he's talking about here. And to really give you a street-level definition of what loving the world looks like is, is this. Loving the world is when sin becomes normal and righteousness looks strange. Loving the world is when sin is normalized or even glorified, but then righteousness is just strange. All right? I've got a few. I wrote a few of these down to help us get our idea or get our mind around this idea of what it means to love the world. Loving the world is when sex before marriage is just what everyone's doing, and those who practice purity are weird. Loving the world is seeing the same-sex relationships as open-minded, but then marriage between a husband and a wife is close-minded. Loving the world is when we choose our own gender, and it's progressive. Loving God is when God chooses gender, and it is never oppressive. Loving the world is getting drunk because it's fun and Staying sober-minded is prudish. Loving the world is laboring for excessive possessions, but those who rest in simple living are foolishly lacking. A more personal example example of loving the world is when Post Malone and Cardi B are looked at as influencers of our day and cool and relevant. But then looking at pastors uncool, irrelevant. Loving the world is a dangerous, dangerous sin. And how do you know that you're in a love affair with the world? Is when sin looks normal to you and righteousness looks strange. Now, John goes on to help us break the loving the world down a little bit more detail. He gives us three things to describe what loving the world looks like. And what are those three things? The desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. We'll break those down here in just a moment. Now, these three things, get this. Charles Spurgeon calls these Satan's trinity. It's beautiful. Because in the garden, let me take you back to the garden in Genesis 3. Let me show you how Satan used these three things to weaponize against Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 3, 6 real quick. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, Pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the gospel according to Satan. If you follow me, I will give you the desires of your flesh, the desires of your eyes. I will give you the pride of life. I will make much of your name. And we know that these three weapons of Satan, they slayed Adam and Eve in the garden. They bought, they died. 
Because they died, when that moment happened, we died along with them. That sin gene passed down to us. This is why you and me today struggle against the temptation of the desires of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. So let's break these three things down. The first one is this, the desires of the flesh. So the desires of the flesh is when we are dominated and ruled by physical cravings. A desire for, for self-satisfaction. And, and our whole existence, we are literally governed around by what feels good to me and my body. All right? Now, uh, oftentimes the flesh is used to describe sexual sins, and, and they do. But it's not just sexual sins. It, it encompasses many, many things. The first thing I want you to know is that desire is God-given. God gave us desires. So that desires inherently are not bad. It's when they become uh, the, the governing point of our entire life, that's when they become bad, when they rule our hearts. Think about food for just example. God gave us food. All right, God gave us food. He gave us the desire for food. It's called appetite. All right, it's called appetite. When my wife doesn't get fed, she gets hangry, right? Like many of you, about 11.59 today, you're going to get hangry. So it's God-given. He gives us appetite for us to eat. But here's what happens. When the desires of the flesh take over, we no longer eat to live, we begin to live to eat. We seek more comfort. We get more pleasure and satisfaction out of food than we do God. Instead of worshiping God with our food, we worship food as our God. This is called gluttony, all right? When you love food more than God, this is a desire of the flesh. Another one that he walks through here, or to expound upon the desires of the flesh, is sex. God created sex, all right? It's his design, and he did it for a couple of reasons. First, procreation, to make new life. And amen to that, because everyone sitting here today is a result of someone having sex. Let's just be honest, all right? That's what we do. So it's for, it's for procreation. You can laugh in church. It's procreation, but it was not just for procreation. It was also for recreation. It was a gift to be in covenantal relationship. And when they would come together and there's good thing, good desire, right? But what happens is, is when the desires of the flesh take over and now I'm governed to satisfy my physical cravings and having sex with whoever I want to, anytime I want to, with anyone I want to, including self, when I do that, I am succumbing to the desires of the flesh. Alcohol would be another one. Psalm 107 says that wine was given to gladden the heart in God. Jesus drank wine, made wine, drank wine. It's a good gift from God. But what happens is when people want alcohol more than God, they get more comfort satisfaction, pleasure in alcohol, or it just becomes an obsessive part of their life. Maybe you're not even drinking to drunkenness, but you just got to drink all the time. Everywhere you go, you got to drink. Or yes, when you drink 
to drunkenness. This is a desire of the flesh. So these things, like I said, inherently aren't bad. Food, sex, and alcohol. But when it turns into gluttony, sexual immorality, pornography, all those things, and then when it comes and exhausts itself in in drunkenness and those things, that is when the desires of the flesh are ruling us. And he equates that with loving the world. All right? The second one is this, desires of the eyes. Desires of the eyes are when your eyes give way to lust and coveting what you don't have. So you, you look at things in the world, you don't have them, and you want them, right? And that is the, the air that we breathe in our culture today. We are constantly, 24-7, being bombarded with advertisements. I can't get these stupid things on my phone, these Instagram ads popping up on my phone all the time. All those things are is, you don't have this, you need this desire of the eyes over and over and over again, including pornography, but not limited to. You look at, you go through social media feed, you look at TV, and you're like, man, I want that guy's house. He has a bigger house than I do. I want that house. I want a, I want a new car because I want, he has the car. She's got that car. Now I want that car because it's got a heated steering wheel and heated seats. I must have that car. Or other people covet other people's families. Look at their family. It's so perfect. The spouse, the picket fence, they have kids. I want that family. That is called covetousness and lust, and that is a desire of the eyes. What you have is what God has given you, and we are to be content in that. But when the desires of the eyes come in, Satan is whispering to us, you must have this. You deserve this, right? Desire of the ice. The last one is the pride of life. This is probably the most dangerous one because this is self-glorification. And if you don't know, America is the hub for self-glorification. I, me, my world that you and I live in. Do you. Be you. Be happy. YOLO, whatever you want to say in that, this is the system that governs our country. You define truth. It's all about you. This is why the selfie is the number one picture taken today. We used to, with cameras, take pictures of people that we love, didn't we? What we do with that now is we take pictures of the person we love the most, us. Pride of life comparison. This is not just a thing that we, average people, pastors even struggle with things like that. Comparison game, looking at churches, posting pictures of how many people they had their church, how many hands are raised in service. Why is our church growing? Why does the pastor covet lust? Because of the desires and the pride of life. This are, these are the dangerous things that Satan uses against us. Let me read to you once again a few more Ways to put this on the ground, this comparison between love of the world and love of God. In these, you're going to hear some things that I really hope that you sniff out some of those empty, fake, 
faux Pinterest quotes, things that you hear on TV and news. I'm really hoping those who have ears, let them hear. And we're able to drive out this nonsense and this heresy of the world. Listen to this. Love of the world is the focus is on me. Love of God, the focus is on God. Love of the world is love yourself. Love of God is love your God. Love of the world says live your best life now. Love of God says your best life is later. Love of the world is to make a name for yourself. Love of God is to make his name great. Love of the world is to do whatever makes you happy. Love of God is to make God happy. Love of the world is to teach your children to love themselves and seek self-fulfillment. Love of God is to teach your children to love and obey God. Love of the world is the desire to look like a model and love your physical appearance. Love of God is to treat your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and cultivate an inner beauty. Love of the world is having others serve you. Love of God is to be a servant of others. Love of the world says stay married as long as your spouse meets your needs. Love of God is to serve and love them for life. Love of the world desires to stay up to date with all the trends and fashions. Love of God is content just to have clothes. Love of the world says, chase your dreams, follow your heart, and you can be whatever you want to be. Love of God says, chase hard after the heart of God. Follow Christ, and he will make you into who he's created you to be. Church, please... When you engage an anti-Christ world when you leave here and you're flooded with the thoughts and the minds and the quotes and all, please, I beg you, sniff out the worldliness that you see everywhere we go. Protect yourself. It's everywhere. It's the world system that we live in, I live in with you. We have to be able to determine what is the love of the world and what is the love of God. Our eternity rests upon these things. Now, let me, let me transition. Those are the three things of what loving the world. Now, John gives us three reasons why we should love God and not the world. All right? The first reason he gives us is that if you love the world, then you don't love God. If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in them. He's, he's, he's making a statement that is very much in contrast He's saying that you can't love the world, all the system we just described, and love God at the very same time. It is an impossibility. James would agree with that, James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whomever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So to love the world... To love all the normalization of sin that's in the world, that we could actually be called by the Holy Spirit adulterers and adulteresses. This is an assault on the love and the beauty of God. Jesus would say it like this in Matthew 6 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Jesus is saying you can't have two masters. Either the world is your master or God is your master. There are no alternative choices between the two, and you can't do both. So I, I, I plead with you, if you put yourself in a class where you love the normalization of the world that you live in today, you are putting yourself in a class of God-haters, rather you believe it or not. You don't want to flex on God in that way. I promise you, you don't want to. Don't be in the God-haters club. Get over into the God-lovers group of people, all right? Uh, the second reason why we would love not love the world is because he says the world is passing away in verse 17. The world's passing away. So despite the appearance of power and the permanence of this world that we live in, right? We think strong, mighty, we're thriving. That is a mirage, it's melting away. It's all a phantom. The world is in a process of slow disintegration, and it is heading towards destruction. It's passing away. And what's passing away is not only the world, it's everything in the world, right? Possessions, uh, toys, materialism, everything in this world is going to pass away at some point. This is why. You do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy. Death will one day take all of your stuff away from you. This is why there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. It's all gone. We're going to lose it all. It will be at a yard sale eventually. So no one, no one wants to put stock in a company that is filing for bankruptcy. No one builds a house on sinking sand. Do not put your stock in this world because it is passing away. And then he really expands on this idea that if you put your hope in this world, not only will you lose your treasures, you will also lose your life. If you love the world... You will lose your treasure, and you will lose your eternal life with God. It's a weighty thing to think about. But here's the good news, the last reason he gives us to not love the world. Because if we love God, and we do the will of God, that we will live forever with God. He promises that we won't pass away like the world. We won't perish like everyone in the world and the world itself. We who do the will of God, is what he says, will abide with him forever. I'm not going to expound upon does the will of God because we talked about that. So it's not just acknowledging the will of God, agreeing with the will of God. It's those who actually do the will of God. They will live forever and ever. Now, let me, uh, let me transition to, to breaking this down and kind of landing it, landing it quickly. Um, We've got the one command, do not love the world. But this sounds simple, but it is a very, very difficult thing for us to do, to not love the world. Now, here's why it's hard to not love the world. Because God created us to be lovers. He made us and wired us and constructed us to be lovers he gave us the desire to love. It's God-given. No one can say, I'm not a lover. 
All day long, you and me are lovers of something or someone because God made us that way. Now, he gave us that desire for the obvious reason to be lovers of God. But we have all, because of the sin in the garden, what I've already showed you, we have all turned our backs on God and we have loved lesser things than God. We have become haters of God, spiritually promiscuous. We have chased other lovers our whole life between the one faithful God who's given us. We have committed a grand adultery against God. What do you think his response would be? Judgment, wrath, he's deserving to do all of those things. He's definitely not obligated or on the hook to give me his love, right? You trample over and over and over and over and over again against your spouse. That's a totally different story, right? So what do you think God's response would be? It would be judgment. It would not be love, but that's not what God did. God, in his great love for us, he sent the beloved one and only Jesus Christ but listen, here's, here's, the, here's the connecting piece. Before he started his three-year mission to Calvary's cross, he went to a garden. You remember the first garden we talked about where Satan's trinity conquered Adam and Eve? Well, Jesus meets the Satan again in a garden called Wilderness. And watch what happens. Luke 4, 3. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread, desire of the flesh. And he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus, look with your eyes. Look at all these things that you could have, right? Desires of the eyes. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning to you, guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against me. The pride of life. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord God to the, rest, to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed. For here, Jesus Christ, the greater Adam reverses the curse that was in Genesis 3. He conquered Satan's trinity. He defeated the desires of the flesh. Many of those things. He was humble. He didn't seek. eyes were on the scriptures, not on his flesh. He was governed by the spirit. What does he do after he's Remember his response here. This is to not the million times that you and me have succumbed to desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I can't even count. I hate to see what my ledger looks like one day. But, but in response to that, what does God do? He sent a son. And this is what is called the greatest love, sending a son to die for God-haters. You 
and me. So we could become lovers of in Christ that he paid the sins. He paid the cost of every single time you gave way to the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. He paid it all. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you get life. You become a lover of God. That's why this is the scandalous, uh, greatest love of all, because it was so not deserved by us. Have you ever trusted that Jesus Christ did that for you? Have you ever said, my religion didn't do it, my confirmation didn't do it, my baptism didn't do it, my religion, my giving money, tithing, all none of those things ever did it. I didn't save myself. Jesus Christ, only you can save me. If you have not done that, plead with you that today would be the day that you would truly trust in Christ for the first time. How you can do that, you can actually get up in the middle of, I'll, I'll meet you back there, Matt will be back there, someone else to be back there to talk with you. You can check a box on the card, you can call us tomorrow, you can email, anything. But we want you to know what it means to find life in Christ and to become a lover of God. For the believer, let me talk to you for just a moment. If we're being honest with ourselves, we still struggle daily with the desires of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. We are undone projects. We are gospel projects. It is not done in us. So we have to fight against these three things. I mean, we have to engage in the battle. It's one of the marks of the believer is we're fighting against all these things. How do we fight against these temptations? Well, how did Jesus fight the temptations? He quoted scripture. He quoted scripture to the devil. What he didn't do was, oh, where's my Bible? Where's my KJV? Where's my ESV? Let me read a passage. I don't even know it. No, he didn't. He, he had it memorized. It was on his heart. He had been abiding in the word, so he knew it to memory. And the minute he speaks scripture, the devil flees from him. Church, if you don't weaponize yourself with the word of God... You are defenseless against Satan's trinity. This is why you read. Not because it's the Christian thing to do, because it's the sword and it fights against Satan's trinity. So I'll leave you with this last question. The band's going to come up and we're going to worship. I want to ask you this question. Is today... The sermon, is it just, John's words here, is this just something to be appreciated for you? Or are you going to fail to emulate John here? Like you can't just say, John, that's great stuff. That's really good stuff. And then fail to emulate him. You and I must choose today either to be lovers of the world or to be lovers of God. Choose wisely today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, uh, we can't even begin to comprehend what grace and mercy actually is. That we could be people who spend our lifetime promiscuous, committing adultery against you, finding love and lovers way, way inferior to you. You're the only faithful love this world has ever known. God, we didn't deserve your love. 
But God, you showed us what true love is by sending your beloved so we could hand you our hatred of you and you would in turn make us lovers of you. It's unbelievable grace and mercy. God, today I pray that you quicken the dead, as I said, and those who are in Christ would choose wisely today to love you and not the world. In Jesus' name, amen.